I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Join me on a quest to find awe and wonder in all nature, human or wild, vast or small, encounters that move us beyond words. Your host for this episode is Constant Wonder producer Eric Schultzka. A four-year-old's father had died unexpectedly. Over the next year, the boy experienced grief and a sense of abandonment. He was five when his recurring nightmares began. The earliest dream experience I can remember was a series of repetitive nightmares. And it was so scary at the beginning that I told my mom I didn't want to sleep again. The first dream, which was the the, the scariest dream, was I, I was a child in an abandoned city with no adults around, only kids. And it was always rainy, and it was always cold and and dark, and everybody feeling orphaned, really. And there was a a house in the center of that place that was made of stone, and that was the witch house. And the witches lived there. And every once in a while, we had to all flock there, and one of the children would be chosen to go inside. Nothing would happen for some time, and we were looking at the windows, everything was dark, and then after some time, Some light would show the profile of the witch, and then we would have a scream, and and I would wake up. The boy didn't know the other children in this dream about the witch house. Those kids were not recognizable to him, but other details felt very real. For weeks, versions of this nightmare tormented him, and every time they ended with that scene at the witch's house. Sadata Hibero, the boy in the nightmare, would later become a prominent neuroscientist. He's now the deputy director at, and I'm going to butcher the language here, the Brain Institute at Brazil's Universidade do Rio Grande do Norte. And no surprise, he is also a leading expert in sleep and dream research. In this episode of Constant Wonder, we'll be exploring visions of the night with Siddhartha Hibero. We're going to learn more about his own fascinating dream life, and we're going to talk to him about advances in sleep and dream science. Then we're going to speak with Robert Stickgold, a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Stickgold's own groundbreaking research played a key role in pushing sleep and dreams from the margins of neuroscience into the scholarly mainstream. First, let's go back to that frightened five-year-old Siddhartha Hibero, a little boy whose recurring nightmares had led him to fear sleep. My mom was very savvy. She figured that something bad was going on, and she took me to this psychotherapist. I remember him vaguely. I remember his name. I remember his, his appearance. I don't remember him talking about anything related to the trauma. I remember playing board games. It was a fun experience. It was, it was good to go there. And I, it felt like playing, mostly. I didn't feel like going to see the doctor, the shrink. And then I began having another kind of dream, which was also repetitive. It was not a, an overt nightmare. It was more like a thriller. And in this movie, I was a child, but I was a detective. And I had a male friend, an adult. He wasn't anybody I knew But he had dark hair like my father, but also like my therapist. He was there. He gave me a lot of confidence. And then I was investigating the disappearance of a madman, a criminal, a psychopath. 
He was hiding somewhere in the airport in my hometown, Brasilia, capital of Brazil. So I would go to this airport and look around, and it was also kind of raining, but it was not raining so strongly. It was not a, like a storm, like in the previous nightmare, but it was, it was more like a, a dim, constant, long sorrow, rather than the shock of the beginning of the grief. And then I had this feeling of danger, because I couldn't find that madman. And then finally I leave the place. The dream was in third person. And when I leave the scene, a camera stays open to see what's going on and then moves a little bit and then shows that that madman is, is in the scene, on the ceiling actually, facing everything and, and, and very creepy, in fact. And then I would wake up and, and be scared and so on. Hiperro says he believes that the therapist first suggested that he try controlling his dreams. This suggestion led to a third and more hopeful dream sequence that culminated in a little bit of lucid dreaming where the boy had both awareness and control of the dream. In this third dream, I'm a boy that is hunting a tiger in the jungle. And I also have this friend giving me support. And we're going through the jungle and looking for this tiger. I have a gun this old-style gun, a musket. It was a musket. The dream was much less scary than the previous ones. It was much more thrilling, and it was actually almost fun up to a point. It, it's colorful, and it's interesting, and I don't feel scared at all at the beginning. And then at some point, I see a little island. There are cliffs also, and there's a, a small bridge connecting to this little island. And then my companion says, well, I cannot go there with you. It's time for you to go alone. I feel a little bit scared. I also feel grief, but also feel empowered. And then I go. And then my whole focus is on the tiger. And then as I go over this wooden trunk that serves as a bridge, and I'm preparing to ambush the tiger, I realize the tiger ambushed me. And then I jump in the water and then I become lucid. There's a big shark in this water and I have to, to swim next to the shark. So let's recap. First, a boy loses his father. He's threatened, he feels powerless, feels abandoned. He gets some therapy. And at this point, the horror dream starts to become a project to find a villain. That scene's rather vague ending remains a little disturbing. It's even a little creepy, as Hiberto says. Next comes a tiger hunt. The boy's now holding a weapon. He's acquired some hope and what seems to be a sense of purpose. His mentor or guide goes with him as far as a bridge. He's a Gandalf figure who says, I can't cross over that bridge with you. You have to go alone. And so the boy does with an outcome that is scary, but also empowering and rewarding. That dream sequence strikes me as a straight-up archetypal myth. And I think its purpose was clear. The purpose was to help a bereft little boy express his horror and his vulnerability and then empower him and give him some equilibrium. So I asked Hipero if those meanings were clear to him at the time. I don't think so. First of all, as soon as I stopped having those nightmares, my mom interrupted the therapy. She was a widow with two boys and she didn't have money to spare. It was something that occurred for maybe four months max. And I would only go back to psychotherapy when I was already a young adult. It took me many, 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 many years, more than three decades, to make sense of that. 
But once I made sense of that, it became very clear to me that those dreams were expressing my adaptation to the circumstances and empowering me to continue living, even though I could not have that male figure to support me as it happened. And then since then, I've been through psychotherapy many times. And I'm an advocate of psychotherapy for everybody. I think everybody should do it. It's like doing the laundry. You need to <laughs> you know, wash everything once in a while. I'm very grateful to her because she could feel that there was something that needed her treatment and the treatment came. That is such a lovely tribute to your mother. Did you discuss these dreams with her at the time? We talked about those dreams. We remember this. It was part of the family lore. Oh, remember when those dreams happened. But it was not something that would come to my register until I was 24 years old, when I was beginning my PhD. After her husband's death, Hibero's mother went on to get a college degree in anthropology. As Hibero was growing up, his mom was reading Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud and Margaret Mead, and some of this she was reading aloud to him. So he was also familiar with ideas such as the subconscious and the collective unconscious and the meaning of dreams and shared myths. This awareness would come into play later on and may have contributed to his ongoing interest in dreams. The dreams that I remember from my adolescence were the attempt to have lucid dreams. Many times having a nap in the mid-afternoon or a late morning dream when you're sleeping over. And I would have the intention to have lucid dreams. And then I started to learn a little bit about the methods, how to get there. And then I also remember the scare. <laughs> when you succeed and you're like, okay, I'm here. Lucid dreaming is being conscious that you're dreaming in real time. Often lucid dreamers can consciously control their behavior and the storylines within their dream. There's brain research suggesting that lucid dreaming is often, in fact, a hybrid state between consciousness and sleep. Now, there's some concern that lucid dreaming could cause patients who are prone to psychosis to blur the lines of reality. But there's also research that suggests that lucid dreaming can be taught and possibly used to help people who suffer from PTSD, recurring nightmares, anxiety, etc. This therapeutic effect seems to be what happened to Siddhartha's young boy. He has this mentor who's helping him hunt the tiger, and then he has to leave the mentor at the bridge, and he has to jump in the water and begin swimming, and now he starts experiencing that lucidly. He's swimming beside the shark, and he's aware it's happening in the real time. That lucid dream sequence seems to symbolize, and it may even have helped him develop his empowerment after the trauma of losing his dad. Now, as a teenager, Siddhartha had the luxury of sleeping in, and this extra sleeping created a fertile field for more lucid dreaming. Lucid dreaming will not occur at the beginning of a night. It will occur at the very end. Most adults don't have even time to have lucid dream because they are all constantly following a scheduled program. But teenagers have more time. And I remember in my solitude, in my empty room, in a very long afternoon, having enough time and having the body rested enough so as to attempt lucidity. After his undergraduate work in Brazil, Siddhartha Hibero went to Rockefeller University in New York City for a PhD in neuroscience. He got a chilly reception when he arrived in New York. It was, it was quite, quite a storm the day I arrived. And I was coming from very, very sunny Brazil to very, very cold New York, where I barely knew anybody. As soon as I arrived, I had to catch up with a lot of seminars and classes and everybody reading the most up-to-date research. And I wanted to join, but I, it was very hard for me. 
Even though I, I suppose I had good English, I could barely understand what people said. I was so out of my comfort zone that for a couple of months, I could not even participate in the conversation. I didn't understand the science and I didn't understand the English. Then I would go to the lab and sleep. I, was, I would doze everywhere. I would go to the seminars and sleep. I would go to, the, to classes, lectures, anything. I was sleeping all the time. And it was so embarrassing. I really couldn't stop. And at some point I said, okay, I need to really surrender. Whatever is happening, maybe I'm going to sleep for, for 20 days and then be kicked out of this university. But I really need to attend to my body. My body is telling me to go to sleep. And of course, it was winter, you know, very, very little light throughout the day and a very short day. From the outside, somebody would say that I was utterly depressed. From the inside, I was not really depressed as I was overwhelmed. For about two months, I was sleeping as much as, as I wanted, up to 16 hours a day. And I was dreaming, dreaming like madmen, dreaming, 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 dreaming. I remember having repetitive dreams, dreams in which I would walk on a Sunday morning in one of those chilling blue sky days with a lot of sun and very, very cold and nobody on the streets. I was the only person. And I had many of those dreams. And at some point, I started having dreams with my colleagues, some of which are among my best friends to this day. And some of them are good people I've worked with for many years. And this group of people started to gel in this transition between winter and spring. It was amazing. Between February and April, I went from being the guy that sleeps everywhere, doesn't know anybody and doesn't know what everybody's talking about. And then I went to be the guy that has many friends and I started making discoveries in the lab that ended up being featured in excellent journals. So there was this fast transition of adaptation. So sleep and dreaming were not sabotaging me, they were actually helping me, but I had to give it time. When I came out of this, I started looking into the neuroscience textbooks to see how much was known about this. And I remember finding that much was known about the brain mechanisms that generate different sleep states, but nothing was known about dreaming and nothing was known about the functions of sleep and dreaming. When I read that, I said, great, if nothing is known, then I want to add that knowledge. But I also remember thinking, this cannot be correct. This is missing an important part of the story because I had the memory from the conversations with my mom, from the readings, from the books at, uh, at my mom's place, that of two things. One, that sleep deprivation was bad for, for memory that there was evidence in the psychology realm of that. And of course, this evidence has been there for nearly a century. But the second was the contribution of psychoanalysis. Because I remember from the conversations that dreams were meaningful, that dreams had a function, that they were useful somehow. And then I, I made this trip to Strand, you know, a, a secondhand bookstore, a fantastic bookstore, beautiful, fantastic place to visit. And I got the completed works of, of Freud for $5. It's not the complete, complete works, but most of the stuff is there. And, and I went home and I read as much as I could, especially from the interpretation of dreams by Freud. One very interesting thing that I read was the understanding that at least some dreams were related to the future, needed to be interpreted, and could be premonitory. 
That's premonitory as in premonition, dreams about future events. In a modern scientific framework, that's getting a little weird, I know. Can dreams see into the future? Sigmund Freud, Hiberto says, believed that the unconscious mind can use vast data reserves to sketch out probabilistic scenarios about what might happen later on. And those probabilistic scenarios can be shockingly accurate. We'll dig more into that later. I'm Eric Schultzka, and this is Constant Wonder. For most of human history, it was simply a given that dreams reach beyond our conscious awareness, that they reach toward the metaphysical, things that are unseen, perhaps probing another realm of existence or in pursuit of some divine knowledge. In all traditional world cultures, Siddhartha Hibero says, dreams have been thought to be revelatory, instructive, healing, magical. This view still holds in many parts of the world, but Western culture began ditching out on that about 500 years ago. In Western modernity, dreams became suspect. Science snubbed the misty realm of sleep. It claimed precision. Dreaming didn't fit in any of those boxes. Even the churches spurned any sort of dream freelancing. Hearing voices, dreaming dreams, rendered people like Joan of Arc dangerous wildcards. As recently as two decades ago, science had little or nothing to say about sleep and dreaming. Here's Robert Stickgold, a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. His research at the turn of the 21st century helped revive intellectual interest in these subjects. Alan Hobson famously in the late 90s said the only known function of sleep is to cure sleepiness which is like to say that the only known function of eating is to make you not feel hungry. So it's true. We did not know any functions for sleep. You know, if you look at the basic human drives, a thirst, hunger, sex, sleep, for all the others, we understood the biological functions of those drives 2,000 years ago. There was no question. Everybody understood that. And then there's sleep. And sleep, up until the turn of the century, we really didn't know. I think that when the hyper-rational West got its, you know, yayas up, it said, we don't have a function for sleep. It must not have a function. It must be useless. I mean, this, this is the Western way, right? If we can't come up with a function, say, for something... We say it's an artifact. We say it's an epiphenomenon. Of course, those who studied sleep felt differently, Stickgold says. But they were a minority, and in neuroscience as a whole, there was little interest in sleep and dreams at this time. Everybody in the sleep field has always been convinced that sleep plays a very important role. It has been maintained in evolution since arguably all the way back to the blue-green algae, but certainly all the way back to insects and very early in the evolution of animals, all known animals that have been looked at sleep. So this can't just be some sort of quirky thing that happened. So so we knew it had a function. We just didn't know what it was. If you want another example of why we are convinced that sleep has to play some critical role in our survival is marine mammals, which if they truly fell fully asleep, they would wake up when they tried to breathe and get water in and thrash back. 
one thing that the marine mammals could have evolved is the ability to not sleep. That would be a dozen genes you got to mess around with and you'd be able to not sleep. But instead, they developed this ability to sleep one half of their brain at a time. The left half of their brain sleeps and the right half stays awake. And then the right half of their brain falls asleep and the left half stays awake. And boy, that would be a real tour de force of evolution. That's a real work of art. So they took the hard route to deal with the problem, which means that the easy route wouldn't have worked. Just evolving to not sleep would not have been viable. That's pretty strong evidence that sleep matters. And yet, in the community of scholars who studied sleep's function, there was still bitter fighting until very recently. Here's Hibero again. Up to the early 2000s, every time that a paper came out saying that sleep and memory were linked, a few very prominent scientists would write reviews and opinion papers saying, we don't believe in the results. And so this was a stalemate that began in the 70s and persisted until the beginning of the 2000s. And many people left the field because it was so acrimonious. People would go to meetings and fight a lot. And the disagreement was conceptual, but then we lacked the data. (laughs) So people were fighting with little data. I I would put it that way. In the 1990s, hard data finally emerged on this sleep-memory connection. And here, Robert Stickold played a key role. Today, the standard view is that the unconscious mind sifts and reorganizes events of the day, stripping these down to whatever might be usable later. The unconscious is sorting bits of chaos into available knowledge. Some of this happens in dreams, but most is likely churning even deeper than that. One of Stickgold's key discoveries began with a dream of his own about an outdoor adventure. So it all started when I was visiting a family summer home up in Vermont. We decided to go climb Camel's Hump, which is a pretty simple mountain in in New Hampshire. And we climbed it. There's a little bit of using your fingers to help you get over really hard places. But mostly it's just a walk up. And I go to bed that night and I'm lying in bed and I can feel my fingers on the cliff. I can feel my fingers on the rocks again. I was there, and I sort of half asleep, and I go, whoa, whoa, that is cool. That is really weird. And and I woke myself back up, and I said, can I do that? Can I get that back again? And I sort of let myself start to fall asleep again, and boom, I'm on the wall again. And I wake myself back up because it's so startling, and I said, wow, that is amazing. let me do that again and that time I just fell asleep I fell asleep and I woke up a couple of hours later and I said oh wow I must have fallen asleep I gotta do that again and it was gone I could not come close to getting those sensations back of being on the rock and being the scientist that I am I said okay This is really important because I was off the mountain at 2 p.m. I had none of these images, none of these sort of intrusive senses of being back on the rock in the next eight hours. And then I went to bed and I couldn't stop it from happening. And then I sleep for two hours and then I can't get it back again. 
whatever it is that's going on, this is important. This is telling us something about sleep processing information or dreams being created from I don't know what. And about a month later, I had been going down some rapids in one of those inflatable rafts on a little tour. And that night I got those images of going down the river. So I knew that this was a real phenomenon. And I had a group of students who I met with once a week and we talked about papers and I moaned to them about how I've got this great discovery and there's no way I can study it. And one of those students looks at me and says, well, what about Tetris? And I turned and I said, what do you mean? And he said, oh, well, if you start playing Tetris, you get all these images of it when you go to sleep. So I had a, a lab tech. April Malia was her name. So for two evenings and nights, really mostly evenings, subjects would come in. They'd play a couple of hours of Tetris. And then... We would put them to bed, and as they were falling asleep, in the first couple of minutes after they fell asleep, we would wake them up and collect a dream report. And then we let them go back to sleep again. And when they fell back asleep, after two or three or four minutes, we'd wake them up again and get a dream report. And we did that with a dozen novices. We did it with a dozen... Experts, we advertised for kids who had played at least 50 hours worth of Tetris. It turns out on average they had played like 300 hours of Tetris. And then by a pure fluke, I got access to a, a small group of patients with amnesia, five of them to be exact. And another a student of mine, David Roddenberry, said, I'll run those subjects, getting in his car and driving down to... Connecticut or Rhode Island, wherever these people lived, and doing the study in their homes. And so what did we find? We found that 75% of the novice players reported at least one Tetris dream. And 50% of the experienced players and three of the five amnesics reported Tetris dreams, even though they had no idea what the dreams were about. They didn't remember playing Tetris. But when we woke them up, they could report their dreams. And so I think it was that third group that got us the publication in the journal Science, um, which is probably the premier scientific journal in the U.S. It was the first paper on dreaming in 40 years that they published. So what did the amnesiacs Tetris dreams tell us? Well, it was telling us something to me very embarrassing. It was telling us that dreams are the royal path to the unconscious, which was Freud's old claim. And I reject all of Freud when it comes to sleep and dreams. He was a total whack job in relationship to dreaming. Um, but he was right about that. So here we are, back to Sigmund Freud. First, Siddhartha Hibero got a copy of Freud's writings about dreams and then practically inhaled it. And now we hear Robert Stickgold offering us a reluctant endorsement of at least a little Freudian thinking. I always find reluctant endorsements to be the most persuasive kind. Freud had said that in dreams we are digesting the residue of the day. 
These people with amnesia before going to bed had no memory of having played Tetris, but then they dreamed about playing Tetris. These are people who are forming dreams from a store of memories that were inaccessible to their conscious mind. They had no idea what they were dreaming about. In fact, to give you a sense, David Roddenberry would come to their house for the second or third night of dream collection. There was one case where he went in and this woman looked at him and said, who are you and why are you in my bedroom? I mean, she didn't remember that she had been playing Tetris with him for hours over the previous two nights. On some level, we want to say they don't have memories, but they do. They just can't access them through conscious thinking, through normal remembering of things. And that's probably how we form our dreams, even if we do have access to our memories. Because the amnesics were remembering these at the same rate as the control subjects. So probably none of them were actually using those what we call declarative memories, memories that you can remember and call to mind and review. And then when you stop and think about your dreams, you say, well, duh, we knew that was true, didn't we? I mean, when you say you dreamt about something, you don't mean that you replayed the memory of that event, right? I go out to dinner and the person with me orders squid and dangles the tentacles in front of my face. And that night I have a dream and in the dream I've fallen into the ocean and being attacked by this giant squid. And I wake up and I said, oh, I dreamt about that dinner last night. And as I say that to myself after I wake up, I can remember being in the restaurant. I remember Sue dangling that squid in front of me and all my revulsion to it and the other people at the table laughing at me. But in the dream, I don't. In the dream, I don't even remember that there was a dinner with squid involved, let alone do I replay that memory. So when we dream about something, we're taking that information not from the same storage bin where we keep our actual declarative memory, our episodic memory of that event. And we've known that actually forever and ever and ever. And again, we just don't put things together. Dreaming is our brain going through networks of associated memories, focusing on distant memories that you would be less likely to think of if you were thinking about this subject when you were awake, and trying to figure out whether this ancient, almost unrelated memory is actually useful or not for the problem at hand. So if I'm teaching subjects on the computer screen to learn to navigate through a three-dimensional maze. One of them has a dream about exploring bat caves, which she had done. Not something that she would think of if she was trying to think about the maze and how to learn this maze task. But then you stop and think, well, maybe, maybe learning these mazes is a little bit like exploring caves. You know, you're going through a maze in the caves. I wonder if what I learned going through those caves would be helpful for doing this computer task. Or I wonder whether what I'm learning on this computer task might be useful in the future when I go exploring caves. Those are the questions that the dreaming brain is asking. It's saying, is this useful? I'm Eric Schultzka. This is Constant Wonder. 
Our guests are Siddhartha Hibero and Robert Stickgold, two leading sleep and dream experts. In the year 2000, Robert Stickgold and his colleagues published two papers demonstrating clearly that sleep, dreams, and REM sleep in particular played a pivotal role in learning and memory. Here's how Monitor on Psychology, a publication of the American Psychological Association, reported Stickgold's striking results. Quote, research confirms the virtues of sleeping on it. Recent studies show that both slow wave and REM sleep are important for consolidating learning and memory, and perhaps even for solving intractable problems." Siddhartha Hibero, now a postdoctoral fellow at Duke University in North Carolina, had become a huge Robert Stickgold fan. I think it started when Stickgold published the famous Tetris paper. And then Stickgold had published a beautiful paper in Nature Neuroscience with a very clear result showing that if people were learning tasks that involved the discrimination of scrambled letters, and then if they trained and then got normal sleep after three days, they would have improved quite a lot in terms of the reaction time. But if they had the first night deprived of sleep, uh, they would have a lot of deficits after three days, even though they had slept all right in, in nights two and three. So they were not unrested. They were not, it, it was not something that was about the stress. It was just re- really because they had lost that night of sleep. Now, this is a lot to unpack. So here's a recap. Stickgold had shown that if you study a puzzle and then sleep on it, you perform better than if you study the puzzle and you don't sleep. And then to ensure that stress and fatigue were not the culprits, that it really was about sleep, Stickgold's team deprived subjects of sleep just one night after the study. But then they let them recover their sleep before testing them a few days later. The results proved sleep deprivation damaged learning and that sleepiness and stress were not at fault. And this result was very clear and it was a large effect and it was convincing and people were believing. And then many people like me, I was a young postdoc, we were saying, okay, good, this is what we want to know because we want to understand the mechanisms. We want to look into the proteins, the genes, the neurons and so on. Let's move on. It was hard to move on when many prominent neuroscientists were still arguing that sleep had no purpose. As late as 2003, there was still dogged resistance to the new science of sleep. But then in that year, many of the world's sleep experts convened in Chicago to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the discovery of REM sleep. They met to celebrate, but also to argue. During this conference, two of the staunchest critics of the new sleep science and two of its strongest advocates, one being Robert Stickgold, went head to head. Siddhartha Hibero was in the audience. The Chicago 2003 was a turning point. So the proposition was sleep and memory are related. And then people say, ah, no, I don't believe in this. Because, for example, animals that sleep a lot are not more intelligent than others that sleep less. And the guy would say, well, but I don't believe in this because the dolphins are very smart, but they don't have REM sleep. This kind of arguments were not direct arguments about data, but rather philosophical arguments in the absence of data. And then Stickle he lost his patient and he said, So what part of P less than 0.0001, corrected for Bonferroni, don't you understand? And this is jargon for saying, I have a paper, its effect is significant, it adheres to the best statistical standards, and, and what, what else do you have to say? Do you have another experiment that shows the opposite? And then the, the other scientist said, okay, I don't want to come back to this, because people were cheering. 
And the, the guy said, I won't come back to these kinds of meetings. And everybody said, yeah, okay, good, thank you. And then everybody started to cheer and it was like a party. And after that, I think the powers of, of curiosity and inventivity were unleashed in the sleep and memory field. It blossomed and it's, in the past 20 years, it's been a very hot field. A quick aside here on that Chicago debate. Thomas Kuhn's classic treatise on scientific revolutions describes a bloody battlefield where scientists fight over time until evidence accumulates and one of the theories triumphs and the other leaves the field defeated and embarrassed. Scientific revolutions, according to Kuhn, are rarely won in a single big bang moment. With dreams, such a moment seems to have occurred in Chicago in 2003. We've heard Siddhartha Hibero recite it, and Robert Stickgold, who delivered that coup de grace at the debate, has ever since regretted that it wasn't recorded. The lack of a recording of that is, is very disappointing. Right afterwards, I called my wife and talked to her about it, and she said, you recorded it, right? And I said, no! <laughs> And so to set history right, I had Stickgold record his iconic line for us to fill in in Hibero's narration that we just heard above. But here it is for fun and history once more. So what part of P less than 0.0001 corrected for Bonferroni don't you understand? So just 20 years later now, Few question that sleep is crucial to consolidating learning. Just the other day, an acquaintance of mine casually linked his academic struggles to serious sleep apnea. Lack of sleep keeps me from consolidating learning, he said, as if it was simply a given that sleep and learning are linked. Researchers in the general public today all assume a paradigm that was embattled just 20 years ago. In addition to consolidating learning, it seems pretty clear now that dreams offer a creative force for solving problems. Consider the invention of the sewing machine. In 1845, the American inventor Elias Howe was struggling to figure out how to make a needle work for a sewing machine. And he went to sleep one night and he dreamed that he had been captured by a tribe whose leaders threatened to kill him unless he could make the sewing machine work. They were about to kill him when he noticed that their spears had holes in the tips. And then he woke up. Here's Stickgold again. And he says to himself, oh, put the hole in the head of the needle. And then I just got to push the needle a little bit through the fabric to get the thread to the other side. So this sounds to me like the subconscious had actually solved the problem and knew it had solved the problem. The symbolic message was almost, I think, a humorous wink. Do you think that his subconscious had nailed it before the dream came out? No, I don't think so. I think dreaming is very different than the kind of musing that we can do when we're awake where we immediately latch onto solutions and, and recognize them as solutions and transform them into actions. Usually we wake up from our dreams and the final step hasn't been done. In fact, I suspect he didn't think of putting the hole in the head of the needle until after he woke up. But maybe he did. I don't know from this particular dream. Maybe I'm thinking too generously about the unconscious, but it seems to me that if the unconscious is going to put those holes in the spear's heads, it knew what it was doing. 
That might very well be true. That's the kind of statement that makes dream researchers like me cringe <laughs> because, because there's no way to know. And, and it, there's no way to know what knowing that would entail. Obviously, he had to wake up right at that point from the dream or he wouldn't have remembered it. Right. Um, I think I'll go with your interpretation. The, the brain had already figured out that you could put the hole at the head of the needle. I don't know that it had the whole thing worked out. It's almost more parsimonious to say that the brain had figured out the problem rather than to say that, that the holes appeared in the spears just randomly, you know. Yes. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, Edison, Thomas Edison, used this technique. Um, he would sit in an armchair with his right arm on the arm of the chair holding uh, a spoon over a tin pan. And he would let himself fall asleep while he thought about some problem that he was trying to solve with an invention. And of course, as he falls asleep, the muscles relax in his hand and he drops the spoon. It hits the pan, it wakes him up, and he says, oh, there's the solution to my problem. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Salvador Dali did the same thing. He used little metal balls that he would hold in his hand over a plate. And he would think about some painting that he was trying to imagine exactly what it was going to look like. And when the balls fall, it would wake him. He has a book called 50, 50 somethings. I can't remember. But he talks about it in there, and he says explicitly, you only want to be asleep for a fraction of a second before you wake up and find the answer in your mind. So dreams can help us solve problems. What else can they do? We've already heard that they can solidify memories. They can also help us make sense of the past, and they can help us resolve trauma or get stuck trying in the case of PTSD. And then the elephant in the room. Can the dreaming subconscious point to the future, even predict the future? As promised, we're back at premonitory dreams or premonitions. A classic example of a premonitory dream that Hibero cites was a nightmare that came to an Amerindian leader in Chile the night before the 1973 coup that killed President Salvador Allende. Martin Pinal had a dream that swarms of birds were attacking each other and that there were bird carcasses everywhere. For Pinal, it was one of those dreams where you know it meant something, and he awoke early that morning and went into hiding, thereby surviving the carnage of the day. He would have been one of the targets. But despite Freud's attempts to explain premonitory dreams as being something your unconscious is dredging from facts it has at hand, Hibero still acknowledges that any effort to explain the possibility of premonitory dreams does take us right up to the edge of metaphysics. People can have different interpretations. You can have an interpretation that says, well, this was an extra physical experience of my soul, and many, many people believe in that. Or you can say, well, this was probably an experience within my body, within my cells, within my neurons, but not less wondrous. If you can meet with your ancestors, for example, in a dream and can exchange words of wisdom and of tenderness, for me, it's, it's equally wondrous 
whether this happens in neurons or in a fifth dimension that uh, physics is yet to map. But premonitory dreams are still very tough to study, Stickgold says. People frequently will come to me and say, you know, I had a dream that predicted the future. I, you know, dreams are telepathic. They can see into the future. And I say, well, that is remotely possible. We'd have to rewrite all our laws of, of physics and biology to make it work, but it's, it, it's possible. More likely is that you read subtle cues. And I give the story of a woman who uh, told me that she had a dream about her father dying. And the next morning, her mother calls her and tells her that her father had died. And she said to me, but, you know, there is no way I could have possibly expected that. I mean, he was in great health. In fact, I talked to him just yesterday after he had played this tennis match with an old friend of his. And he said, oh, that's that, I think I played harder than I've ever played before. My shoulder's aching. And I said to her, so you don't remember the fact that an aching shoulder is a referred pain for a heart attack. She said, I don't know what you're talking about. And I said, well, your brain does. Somewhere at some time, she had heard that fact, that you can't feel pain in your heart itself. There's no pain receptors in the heart. And so you get what's known as referred pain that goes all along the same spinal segment and you feel it as a stiff shoulder or pain in your shoulder. You heard that and you stuck it away in your memory. One of those memories you were talking about earlier that's in your unconscious mind and you don't even remember that you put it there. And then she's sleeping on it and she's thinking about her dad and how much she loves her dad and how he had a sore shoulder. And her brain says, sore shoulders, do I have anything in the file cabinet on the sore shoulders? Oh, yeah, heart attack. He's going to die. Now, did the brain figure out that he was going to die? Or did it just take the heart attack, which is associated with the sore shoulder, which is associated with her father, and create a dream about her father and a heart attack, just to see if it, you know, run it up the flagpole and see if anybody salutes, just to explore the possibility. Hibero agrees that the most likely explanation is that the unconscious can retrieve and process bits of data that were gleaned from the past, and it can use those to construct a story that seems to predict the future. Now, that explanation makes the seeming miracle of a dream that predicts future events seem less supernatural. It's still marvelous. In fact, it's marvelous that our unconscious mind has that power. And even that amnesiacs, and presumably those with other brain disorders or dementia, may have very rich unconscious lives. But still, it would be fun to consider that we may have something more here. The unconscious is, after all, a vast terra incognita. So I asked Tibero if he feels that there could be still more to this vast world of dreams and the unconscious mind, something that might touch on a fifth dimension or a sixth sense. It's a marvelous question. And I actually, at the end of the book, I, I respond to that. And what I say is the following. For most dream accounts that people have, we can give a parsimonious, materialist, rational, logical explanation if we consider all the evidence. Now, I have heard people telling me of dream experiences that have a kind of precognitive or premonitory quality 
that doesn't seem to fit in this theory of a probabilistic oracle, right? Now, sometimes people say, well, I had this dream about something that I had no idea and I had no chance of knowing. And I must say, interesting, I'm a scientist. <laughs> I'm ready for more data. But these things need to be well documented. Until they are, and until we have a scientific agreement about having convincing documentation, it's always possible that the person is making it up. Now, things can change dramatically with new experiments. For example, for years, many people in the field believed that dreams did not occur during sleep but rather when people woke up and that the feeling that they were occurring during sleep was a misunderstanding. And this was a legitimate philosophical question and it was also a legitimate biological question for decades throughout the 20th century. But then in 2014, a, a team of Japanese researchers published a, a paper in Science showing that dreams can be decoded to some extent. So it's possible based on brain activation patterns to tell with some degree of confidence, what people are experiencing subjectively during sleep. You say this so matter-of-factly, but this is mind-blowing stuff. It is. <laughs> but one thing that this experiment shows, and it's very important for the understanding of what dreaming is, is that the best decoding you can do is 10 seconds before the person wakes up, not after. So we now know for a fact that dreaming happens during sleep and not as some strange phenomenon at waking up. So this is an example in which people, important people in the field had to change their minds, and they did, based on evidence. We now have a viable rough description of how information is coded in the brain, much as we know how it's coded in a computer. It's a different algorithm and it's different methods, but I don't have trouble understanding as a biologist how the brain takes in information from what we see and hear and how it processes it into a form that can be stored efficiently and how it can search out and find associated information also stored in the brain. I just don't know how it can bring any of that stuff into this thing we call conscious awareness. Consciousness, and dreaming is just a special form of consciousness, consciousness is not a material thing. You can't come up with a definition of consciousness that consciousness researchers can agree on. Just like we can't come up with a definition of dreaming in the sleep research world, that everybody can agree on. I asked Tibero the same questions, and he pulled out a historical metaphor that certainly gave me cause for pause. We need to be open to everything, right? I think it would be anti-scientific to say that a priori, we, we preclude a certain possibility. But, but if somebody wants to have such a strong claim about metaphysical entities, they need to be prepared to provide some data. But you are open to the idea that science might be able to approach and even put a foot on the metaphysical bridge. Yes, totally. Look, remember, the, the EEG, the electroencephalogram that you will find in every hospital in the world, right? This was developed by a guy that was trying to investigate telepathy. <laughs> yes, Hans Berger invented EEG and, and, and produced the discovery of the alpha waves. 
I was not aware of this. I looked it up. It's true. Hans Berger, the German inventor of the EEG machine, was actually pursuing evidence of mental telepathy. He was chasing the idea that humans can transmit thoughts to other people. Now we take for granted that the conscious self sends electrical signals via the brain. We talk of EEGs and MRIs and fMRIs, but in fact, as Stickgold notes, science is still standing with a foot on the metaphysical bridge. We have no idea what consciousness is. The gap between awareness and memory on the one side and those electrical impulses on the other remains a vast chasm. And we should probably not be surprised if, as science advances, our conscious minds are, from time to time, blown. One last word to Robert Stickgold. He's earned it. I mean, we have no hard evidence that consciousness exists. There has never been a scientific experiment that has shown that humans are conscious. Consciousness is a non-material phenomenon that we don't know what to do with, and we don't know how to study. It behooves us to understand that science only dabbles at the edges. You have been listening to Constant Wonder, I'm Eric Scholzka. Our guests today have been Siddhartha Hibero and Robert Stickgold, two leading researchers in sleep and dreams. Today's episode was produced by me with help from Colson Darrington, Paige Krupperman Darrington, and Brian Barba, with sound design help from Mitchell Towsley and Dallin Jepson. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio. Thank you.